And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the immortal, invisible God, always wise. Father, we live in a world that is filled with folly. Foolishness is the course of this world. For Father, this world says what the fool says, that there is no God. And so, Father, we see in the world around us a working out of this foolishness in the trials and troubles that we see. Father, we see this, that those who turn away from you, those who reject your wisdom and lean to their own understanding, end up causing more distress, more affliction in the world. But, Father, we come before you who is the source of all wisdom. There is no chance, Father, that you would be mistaken. There is no possibility that you would guide us incorrectly. It is impossible, Father, for us to come to you and not find wisdom. And, Father, there is also great hope in the fact that you are a changeless God that your promises are sure and settled in your very changeless character, that we come to a God who is not capricious, who is not constantly changing based on the winds of popularity, but you are the God who is and who never changes. And this becomes great hope for us, Father, for You have determined to save us in your Son. That in Christ, we have a hope that never changes. And so, Father, today, as we look to your changeless word that proclaims your changeless character, may we find hope in that reality. May we also find your Spirit taking your word and challenging us in our lives, that we would Find the areas in which we go after folly. And Lord, that we would align our hearts by your Spirit's grace and work within us. That we would align our hearts, our minds, our thinking, our lives. To conform to the wisdom that you alone have. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit today. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 17 again, uh, but, the, but the focus of our attentions today is going to be verses um, 9 through 12 as we continue looking at the blessed pilgrim. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, and here we have the quote of Psalm 34, 
Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make it offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So to quickly review what we looked at last week, we looked at particularly the the first point of this passage that talks about the blessing of a spiritual family. And of course, as Peter earlier on in chapter 3, and we looked at that several weeks ago, describes instructions for husbands and wives, taking that upon the heels of how he had been instructing all of us to interact with each other, seeking to, to submit for the glory of God, he now takes it and moves back out, and instead of looking at the this nuclear family that we call it, with the father and the, the mother and the children, now he pulls back and says, well, we all are a spiritual family. And the key to having a spiritual family is to have brotherly love. And we talked about the structure of 1 Peter 3, 8, where we see these things that were mentioned here, unity of mind, sympathy, tender heart and a humble mind. To have a unified mind, we must have humble minds. To have sympathy, we must be tender hearted. But all of these things flow from the key, which is brotherly love. And so there's a great blessing that the pilgrim has as we walk around this earth, that we have a spiritual family that we have been united by the Holy Spirit to have. And we looked at the blessings that we have of that family. We have a loving spiritual family, a like-minded spiritual family, and a tender-hearted spiritual family. Now, these are all wonderful things, and, and we would love to recognize that this is the way, that, that, that this would make the path of a pilgrim much easier. It makes it easier for us to, to walk the difficulties of this world when we have people who are behaving this way towards us, loving us, being like-minded with us, having tender hearts towards us. Those things increase our confidence as we walk as strangers and foreigners in this world. But as Peter has called us to interact with our spiritual family, what about our interactions with those who are not a part of our spiritual family? How are we to respond when the world, in its foolish hatred of Christ, lashes out at us. How should we respond? What are we to do when we're persecuted, when we are mocked and teased, when we are drugged through the dirt? 
This is especially appropriate to those who Peter is writing to. The first century believers are being arrested. They're being thrown in jail. They're being killed for their testimony for Jesus Christ. And so the temptation would be for us to respond in kind, to act the same way that they are acting towards us. After all, it's only fair, right? That we are treated some way by the world, so it's only fair that we would respond in kind. But as we are looking at the blessing that a pilgrim has, as a blessed pilgrim, our response ought not to be one of retaliation, but one that seeks to bless others. Think of what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He tells us that the blessed are those who are what? Reviled, persecuted, and speaking all manner of evil against us falsely on His behalf. Notice what Jesus says. This is one of the indications that someone is blessed. That blessing comes to those who experience these type of things. And how did our Savior respond when He Himself was treated this way? When He was reviled? When He was persecuted? When He was nailed to a tree? How did Jesus respond? Luke 23, 33 through 44, or 34. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, here's his opportunity. Right? Here is his opportunity to get back at those who are persecuting him. What does he say? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. It's remarkable that our Savior prayed for those who were killing him not to be judged, not to be thrown away, not to be taken out of the scene, but rather he prayed to the Father that they would be what? Forgiven. And is there any greater blessing on the face of this planet than to be forgiven? So as we have the example of our Savior given to us here, as Peter has called upon us that Christ Jesus went before us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps, the blessing of being a pilgrim is also found in the blessing of being a blessing ourselves. Now again, it's important to note that it is assumed that we will be a blessing to each other. Right? That's what verse 8 is all about. This unity of mind, the sympathy, the brotherly love, the tender heart, the humble mind. It is assumed that we will do those things among each other. So Peter's focus here of who we are seeking to bless is not the body of Christ. Although that is a wonderful, glorious hope that we have, but rather Peter is calling upon us to bless our enemies, to reach out and be a blessing to them. Well, how do we do this? Well, we see, first of all, we must begin by rejecting retaliation. 
rejecting retaliation. Look with me in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain what? A blessing. We have to reject retaliation. When we are treated with contempt, when we are abused, when we are dealt evil in this world, our natural response is to well up and to retaliate, to treat others in the same way in which they have treated us. In fact, this is the primary way the world views how they deal with other people. If you treat me nicely, I'm going to treat you nicely. You know, you scratch my back, I'm going to scratch your back. And in fact, this is so pervasive in the world in which we live that it has invaded the thinking of God's own people so that we don't really think very much about saying a careless word about somebody or disparaging someone who has harmed us because, well, they did the same thing to us. It's only a fair turn, right? We really have this karmic attitude by default. And, and see, that there really are only two ways of living in this world. We can either live by the grace of God or we can live by karma. Now, that's a, you think karma, you think, you know, that's an Eastern thing. But yet, every other religion lines up with this sort of karma idea. Karma says that, you know, if you do bad, what do you get back in return? Bad. And if you do good, what do you get back in return? Good. And so you ask the typical person, you know, when they stand before God, what are they going to look to? And they're going to talk about these great cosmic weight scales. And they're going to say, well, if I have done more good than bad, then what should come back to me is acceptance before God. That's the way the world lives. And it's also the way in which they live towards those who harm them. How many times have you heard somebody say, karma is going to get you? Karma is going to be rough. And even more degenerate sayings that are used with that term. We all sort of face the world looking looking to either have people be gotten back for what they've done to us or at times taking it upon ourselves to get back at those who harm us in retaliation. Now, is this the way of a pilgrim? No. Notice what Peter says in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for evil. Reviling. Peter speaks of us not giving to someone what they deserve, but, to, but giving them that which they do not deserve. And what do we call that? Grace. So again, there are two ways of living in the world, karma or grace. Karma in the sense that we stand before God on our own righteousness, and that brings no hope, or grace, that we stand before God on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which gives us full hope. And then in our interactions with others, are we going to seek for them to get what they deserve, or are we going to seek to treat them as we have been treated by God Himself, extending them grace? Now, We can do this in a couple 
number of ways. But I think, I think one thing that helps us with all this is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is known as, it's one of my, one of my favorite rules in the Scripture, the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, you should what? Do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's interesting here. We often think about this as, well, I'm supposed to be a kind person. I'm supposed to treat people well. And, And that's absolutely true. But it takes on a different flavor when we think about how this is supposed to be applied to those who are harming us to those who are reviling us and doing evil to us, we should still treat them as we would want to be treated. So as we reject retaliation, we do this. There's three things I want us to particularly point to about how we can reject retaliation. We reject it, first of all, through evil actions. Notice again in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil. We are not to respond to evil with evil. There's an old saying that you likely are very familiar with. Two wrongs don't make a right. And this is sort of one of those, you know, proverbial sayings that everyone sort of accepts. But yet, how often do we not live our lives this way? It's found in Scripture here in 1 Peter Chapter 3, do not repay evil for evil. You know, there is so much evil in this world, is there not? Sin has ruined everything. It's ruined relationships. It's ruined families. It's, It's corrupted every aspect of our society. Evil is everywhere. So adding to evil, is that going to fix the problem of evil? No. And this is what Peter is calling us to. Do not repay evil for evil. No, our flesh wants us to do this. Our flesh wants us to lash out. And perversely, sometimes we can get a sense of satisfaction in the suffering of others. How many of you haven't, when you're at work or, or dealing with a project and somebody, a manager maybe, is pushing their way and you know, you know that it's going to cause problems if they go their way, but you push it, you, you try to explain this and they keep doing it this way. And so when things blow up because of the manager's fault, you take delight in that very thing. Ah, see, I told you so, right? Who doesn't like to say, I told you so? The attitude of a believer, the attitude of a pilgrim, is that we're not seeking to repay evil for evil. We want God's grace to work in the lives of everyone. This means that our reputation is to be one of Christ-likeness. In fact, when we take satisfaction from others' failings, when we take satisfaction from them getting what they deserve, we are no different than the world. When we seek to repay evil for evil, we repudiate Christ. We turn our backs upon who He is. We go with the world in their evil deeds. 
Notice what Paul says in Romans 12, 17. He says the same thing Peter is saying here. Repay no one evil for evil. So what are we to do instead of that? Instead of repaying people evil for evil, we need to think. Give thought so that we would do what is what? Honorable. In the sight of who? All. The responsibility of the believer is not to respond to evil with evil, but to respond with honorable actions. To act as though Christ was in that situation. To ask ourselves, as we are facing trials and tribulations, as people are ill-treating us, the question, what would Jesus do? I know that 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 term and the bracelets that were real popular when I was in high school became sort of trite, but the question is still legitimate. What would Jesus do? And seeking by God's grace and the work of the Spirit within us to act in such a way so that we act honorably even when we are reviled, even when we're taken advantage of. We reject retaliation through evil actions. We don't go with the world in their evil deeds. But that's not all that Peter points to. We don't repay evil for evil, but this second one, I think, probably cuts a little deeper. What's the second phrase he says? We don't repay reviling for reviling. We reject retaliation through reviling words. Now, the actions of the world are biting and hurtful. And direct persecution, particularly for us today, is somewhat uncommon. And you say, yeah, but look at our society. Look at what's happening to believers in Afghanistan, in certain areas of Africa. That's persecution. So today, we don't really face that level, particularly the level that the believers in the first century were facing. And so to some extent, this acting with evil actions in kind to the way they treated us, that's not really something that we really necessarily think about as much, although there are certainly applications there. But I'll tell you where we do have a tendency to go, and that is in the words that we use about others. We have a very very difficult road ahead of us when we lash out in the same way that others lash out about us. See, it's more common for our enemies, for the world, to use the power of words against us. Christianity has been the butt of late-night comedians for decades. If you look at the the narrative placed in the media today about Christianity. We are anti-science. We are anti-truth. We are anti-love. The world is constantly running us down in the words and the ways in which they unfairly speak about us. Now, I think, first of all, we need to realize this should not be surprising, right? In this world, we will have what? Tribulation. And our great hope is to take heart because Christ has overcome the world. If they hated Christ, guess who they're also going to hate? Us. 
So it should come to no surprise to us that the world is going to revile us. They're going to bring contempt upon us. It is hatred of the heart in words. That is what it means to be reviled. And often reviling includes character attacks. It was not simply that someone would oppose a position that you held. They would oppose you. That's what reviling is. And words have great power to harm. Throughout the Psalms, they talk about bridling the tongue and controlling the tongue and not speaking in such a way as to harm. But, of course, in the New Testament, the tongue is... I think nowhere in Scripture more aptly described than in the book of James. Look at what James says about the tongue. It's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by what? By hell. I mean, this is the power of our words and the things we say about other people. The other thing about reviling is that it often employs lies and deceit to disparage us. Now, that's what I think makes the reviling of the world so, so frustrating. Because the way in which we are characterized by the world and the way in which we truly are are night and day different. Yet, it is the reviling that gets more attention. And, and think about the world in which we live today. What gets more attention? Negative news or positive news? Negative news. You know, you don't see a lot of stories about firefighters saving a cat from a tree. If they still do that anymore, I don't know. But you don't, you don't see, that doesn't make the front page. What does make the front page? Entire uh, area in, what was it, Rochester? Was there a fire this week? There was someplace, someplace there was a big fire and the whole area is taken down. And that's what makes the front news. We live in a world that, that focuses in on negativity. And so the world, of course, is not going to portray us in a positive light. And they're going to enjoy running us down and reviling us. Now, the thing that's important for us to keep in mind, and something that we've already been a little reminded of, is that what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, what? Honorable, so that when they lie against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, it will be evident that you're not. They'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, here's the thing. When we are lied about, when someone is whispering about you, when someone's talking about you, what do you want to do about that person? You want to talk about them. Now, this is something that easily wells up in the hearts of God's people today. You're at the, the water cooler, if they still have that now, or the, the coffee pot at, at work. Did you hear about so-and-so? 
This is how gossip can lead to deceit, to harmful things. We can say this about public figures. You know what I heard about the president? You know what I heard about the speaker of the house? You know what I heard about the governor? And we can very easily run them down in our words, whether it's in personal conversations we have with each other or whether it's in the things we post on social media. Is, is that type of reviling okay? No. And if the, the most powerful person in the world came out and lambasted Christianity, our response is to not revile, but instead to bless. And of course, we have the example of our Savior, who when He reviled, did He revile in return? When He was reviled, did He revile in return? No. No. And so we have to reject retaliation through reviling words. And then thirdly, we need to reject retaliation through deceitfulness. We see this as as Peter quotes Psalm 34. He says, Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, so we don't repay evil with evil. And then what is one of the primary ways we can do evil? We can do it by having lips that speak deceit. It's interesting, Psalm 34 begins with David setting his concern over the reputation of the Lord, not his own reputation. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about he's calling upon people to bless the Lord, to boast of the Lord, to magnify the Lord. It's interesting, too, because... That passage is on the occasion of David presenting himself in strange ways before a Philistine king. If you read the passage, David was not really looking to make himself look good before Abimelech. He acted like a madman. And the scriptures are are very explicit so that the spittle came out of his mouth into his beard. He looked like a fool. Now, I, I just can't shake the connection here because why does our flesh rise up when people revile us why do we get upset when people lie about us because we're concerned about whose reputation our own our own david in this passage notice what he finds as the way to love life and see good days keeping his tongue from evil, keeping his lips from speaking deceit. He doesn't let the flesh get a hold of him and allow him to speak falsely about the character of others. And that is the very temptation that we have. If we're going to treat other people in the same way that they've treated us and they've lied about us and spoke deceitful things about us, well then, fair game, right? And so our temptation is to lie about them. Is that the path of a pilgrim? No. And so we have to reject lips that speak deceit. We must keep our lips from evil and from speaking deceit. That means that we have to recognize 
that it's okay if the world has a poor opinion of us. It's okay. In fact, it's promised. The world's not going to think very good things about Christians. And that's okay. Because our reputation is not found in ourselves. Our reputation is tied to our union with Jesus Christ by faith. His righteousness is all ours in Christ. So that when God looks upon us, whose opinion is the only one that truly matters, He sees not our sin, He sees Jesus Christ. That is the reputation we must be concerned with. And so the pilgrim rejects retaliation. But that's not enough. Peter doesn't call us to just say, well, don't react but then just sort of go your own way. Rather, he tells us to take the energies that we would usually use for reacting and use them so that we ourselves can be a blessing. Notice what he says again in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, what? Bless. For to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. As we reject underhanded and sinful ways in our interactions with those who abuse us and do evil to us, we don't just seek to grin and bear it. We seek to actively be a blessing to them. We see this in two ways. We are able to be a blessing through gracious words. Instead of retaliating, we're called to bless. The term bless here means to speak well of. It actually it has the idea, it's the, a combination of, the word, of a word that's used for speaking in the original and giving blessing. It's the word from which we get the term eulogy. And at a eulogy, it means to speak well of somebody after they've gone. So to bless those who treat us with evil and reviling, it requires not just simply giving mercy, but it requires us extending grace, giving them what they don't deserve. Not just simply withholding retaliation, but actively seeking their benefit in the way in which we live. And again, how can we, who have spit at the name of our Savior, who have turned from Him time and time again, and yet all He does in Christ is treat us with what? Grace. How can we, who have received such manifold grace, turn and treat the world with anything less than grace? Again, this is how our Savior responded. Notice again, to this you've been called. Again, he said that here, to this you've been called in verse 9. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that we might follow in his steps. It's what Jesus, it is how, it is how Christ behaved, and it's what he calls us to do. The Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. But what does Jesus say to us? I say to you, love 
your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The reality is is that God treats everyone in this world at this very moment with grace. The fact that the rain has fallen today, there are farmers who are spitting in the name of Christ by the way they live their lives, and yet God provided rain for them. How dare we do any different? We see that also in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, we are to bless those who, what? Curse us. And pray for those who abuse us. And it's what the Apostle Paul did. 1 Corinthians 4, 12-13. He speaks about how he labored, working with his own hands. When he was reviled, what did he do? He blessed. When persecuted, he endured. When slandered, he entreated. And notice, notice whose reputation he's concerned with, right? This is how the world views Paul. We have become and are still like what? The scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That is what Paul recognized the world viewed him as. He wasn't an expert. He wasn't called on the Oprah show or the Today Show to be a religious commentator. He wasn't on Fox News or CNN. He was considered the worst of the worst by the world. And did that bother Paul? No. Because he was not concerned with his reputation, he was concerned with the reputation of his Savior. And as we see in Romans 12, 14, he calls us to do the same thing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He goes on in this passage in verses 19 through 21 that we are, when are we ever allowed to avenge ourselves? When, when, when does that happen? What's the word? What's the word? Never. Never avenge yourselves. Instead, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we leave it into God's purview. So to the contrary, if we're not seeking vengeance, then what are we doing? If our enemy is hungry, what do we seek to do? Feed him. If he's thirsty, we give him a drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then here is the key. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with what? With good. We do this by the way that we speak graciously about those who are persecuting us. And then we also do this by pursuing peace. We notice what happens in verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. By quoting David, Peter points us to the overall goal of our desires to bless others, and it is to bring about peace. You know, if you look on social media, you look on news sources, it doesn't seem like Christians are a lot about peace. We want to fight. 
We want to make sure that our party gets into power. We want to make sure that our laws are passed. We want to make sure that, and, and believe me, I'm not saying that there can't be appropriate ways in seeking these things, but are we seeking peace? Or are we seeking conflict? Notice what he says. If you want to have a, a to love life and to see good days, you are going to seek peace. You're going, and I love the way that David says, you're going to pursue it. Because the reality is, are we ever going to have peace on this world? Not until our Savior comes back, who is the Prince of Peace. So the primary way we seek to pursue peace among those who are reviling us is to call them to come to the Prince of Peace. You know what Paul was before he was the Apostle Paul? He was the persecutor Paul. He was an enemy of Christ. And yet God's grace is of such magnificence that it changed someone who was killing Christians into someone who wrote most of the New Testament by God's providential hand. So we need to be pursuing peace. In fact, those who are blessed by being reviled and persecuted and people saying all manner of evil against us falsely. In that Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, there's another characteristics of of those who are blessed. And they are those who are the what? Peacemakers. And notice what's connected here. They shall be called what? Sons of God. Children act as their parents do. Our God is a God of peacemaking. So what ought we to be about? Peacemaking. This is what it means to be a Christian. We're not to be known as the the brawlers, the argument, the argumentative. This is something that in my own life that I've had to struggle with. Growing up, my mom used to say I would argue with a fence post. And, of course, I would say, no, I wouldn't. And she would say, yes, I would. No, I wouldn't. So, and then I would argue with her about that. It's very easy to let arguments and, and those type of things, that, that discord, feed our flesh. Because, ultimately, when we win an argument, boy, that feels good, doesn't it? It makes us feel like we've done something. It feeds pride. But peacemaking calls for Humility doesn't mean we compromise the truth, but it does mean that we seek peace with each other and with the world in which we live. As Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, we should live what? Peaceably with all. So we should reject retaliation. We should seek to be a blessing. And then finally, the pilgrim will receive blessing. Look again at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called, that you may obtain what? A blessing. There is, first of all, the blessing of goodness in life. Again, in verse 10, David makes a universal statement. If you would like to have a good life, if you desire to love life and to see good days, 
The promise of Scripture is that if we have these virtues in effect, then we will find goodness in life. David is speaking to those who are seeking the fame of God foremost. And so as we live our lives, we can burn as a bright candle by God's grace for His glory, not for others. Now, I think it's important to note what a good life means biblically. It does not mean the removal of adversity. See, you know, we think of the good life as these pictures you see of, of people on a yacht, um, you know, chilling out in, in the, I almost, the Gal- not the Galapagos Islands, but anyways, maybe the Galapagos Islands, I don't know. Isn't it cold in the Galapagos? I don't know. Anyways, some, some very nice Caribbean island. I have the Galapagos on my mind. That's where Darwin did his stuff, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. I'm going to be talking about him tonight with the, with the teens. So, anyways, that's why he's on the mind. I don't have any plans to go to the Galapagos. Why am I talking so much about the Galapagos? Maybe I just like saying Galapagos. The good life is not a life of ease and, and living on a yacht in the Bahamas. It's not about having your best life now from a worldly perspective of having material blessings having, you know, nice things. Look, the happiest people in the Bible are the people who had nothing but Jesus. And see, that is where we find that the blessing that we receive from treating others like our Savior is that we are made more like the Savior. That we get to Join with Him in the fellowship of His sufferings, as Paul says. That there are ways that you will know Christ more through adversity than you could not know Him without that adversity. That's what the good life is. The good life is knowing the Savior. And so if we want to desire to love life and to see good days. We turn away from evil like our Savior. We keep our lips from speaking deceit. We turn away from evil and we do good. We seek peace and pursue it. And then tied up with that goodness is the blessing of God's gracious attention. Look at verse 12. Where are the eyes of the Lord? They're on the who? the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's amazing that David speaks specifically of God's eyes and God's ears. Now, God is a spirit, and so we know he doesn't have literal eyes. He doesn't have literal ears. David is using a figure of speech to point to a wonderful reality for us as we walk along this life as those who are persecuted. The world may turn a blind eye to our suffering and the world may not want to hear what we're going through, but God sees His people and God hears the prayers of His people. We have the blessing of God's gracious attention. Listen, 
We do not suffer in obscurity. And our prayers do not simply bounce off the ceiling. God sees and hears. And He responds by providing exactly what we need. And so this great hope takes us full circle to what was said about Christ. That when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He, was, when he suffered, He did not threaten. But instead, what did He do? He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. And that is exactly what David is calling us to do. It is exactly what Peter is calling us to do. God sees. God hears. You can trust Him. So don't retaliate. But rather seek to be a blessing. This is how the pilgrim is able to be blessed. Even as the world seeks to curse us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. We ask, Lord, that you would work in our midst by your spirit today. Take these truths, mold them into our hearts, transform us by your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood.